The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 166 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by AmericasCardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from AmericasCardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on the OneOuter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, you are here, episode 166. What's happening? Not too much, my man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Um, apart from the little morning uh, we did before, but I'm not going to bore people with that. I think we talk about too many ailments, so... Um, we'll leave that there, and uh, yeah, not much happening. I've just been my fiance's been away for a week, uh, looking after her dad's house and the dog that they're looking after. It's the, she's looking after a dog that's being looked after by them, but they're going on holiday now. So uh, some guy left. <laughs> some guy, okay. yeah, some guy. I think he's some like top professor or something somewhere, and uh, the, her dad is family have been looking after the dog for like 18 months or two years um i was like what? he's not coming back you know but no he is he's like one of these guys that's like away somewhere on some big project and he got in touch recently and was like i'm going to need to you know is it possible that you guys could extend it for a little bit longer and stuff and i think his kids are at boarding school and stuff you know one of these guys that's uh he's fine you know he's he's Sounds like a delight. Yeah, <laughs> abandoned the dog for like two years. I, I thought it was, yeah. you know, it's like, God, like that's a long time for the dog to, and I think they'll take bad when they got to hand it back anyway, so. I, I If I left my dogs with someone for 18 months, you're going to keep the dogs. It's not fair to you otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, actually, I just caught myself here. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but, yeah, I'm fighting a bit of some sort of virus flu. I've had quite a dizzy spell before it, and two minutes into the show, we're talking about dogs that my fiance's dad's looking after. So I, I, I can't believe we didn't get shortlisted for the final four for the podcast uh, uh, America's Poker Awards or whatever it's called, you know? It's like... You know, it's ridiculous. I actually think the concept of poker awards is actually ridiculous as well. Um, it's an honour to be, like, nominated. Actually, I don't even know if it's an honour. It's, it's nice to be... It's, it's nice to be... We're the punk rock. Yeah, like, that, that's yeah. such an automatic thing to say. It's an honour to be... But, no, it's nice to be recognised and people enjoy the show and get something from it. But, yeah, I just think poker, it becomes... Even if you look at the top poker player and celeb like who is probably Negranu or Helmuth, any one of them, you know, toss a coin, different 
different survey of different hundred people on each day. Some will know Helmuth more, some will know Negrano, whatever. But like their following is still tiny, and you know, in retrospect, there's reality mm-hmm. shows from like Jer- uh, Jersey Shore or Geordie Shore, as it's called in the UK, and that who've got like six million Twitter followers, and like Negrano's got like four hundred thousand. Or fa- actually, I don't know what he's got now recently, but I don't know something like that. You know, I think, and it's just it puts it in perspective. I think. Yeah, a lot of these people go around full of their self-importance. And I think the great thing about poker is that poker, the game wins in the end, because still there's no barrier to entry. You can knock Negrano out in the Sunday Million if he plays it, or the World Series main event. Uh, you can go and buy in if you, or satellite in or whatever. So there's there's like a you know an elitist level, and then you've got like mediocre players as well that sort of think that they're... They're poker famous, but like people in the street are like, you know, who do you think you are? Get out of my way, sort of thing. And it, literally, reality stars have got more fame and probably more endorsement uh, opportunities than like I'm talking top players here. I'm I'm not knocking these guys or knocking like you know uh, them. I'm just thinking it's interested in terms of the poker bubble, the way that it's like I I don't know if that goes on. I suppose it probably does go on in other uh, areas such as even chess and uh, even professional sports betting and stuff and they'll they'll, everyone will have their cliques and their people that are you know convinced that you know who I am but in general like nobody does and in uh, 50 years nobody probably will care anyway you know I do understand that people want to have their own award show and this is something I'm trying to adopt as I get older. Just let the adults whatever do whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting others or hurting me because I'm selfish yeah. <laughs> and I'm the center of my own universe, so really don't bug me. But I, I've always had this... There, there was a guy, very intelligent uh, younger man from Cameroon who plays in the NBA now, and... I think just because he grew up in Africa, he's a little smarter about American culture looking in. And something he said is, I'm just enjoying the ride before they knock me down. Mm-hmm. And he he was saying, it's nice to get all the fame and everything, but at some point they're going to knock me down in some way. They That's just how people are. They put you up on a pedestal and they knock you down. And I've always had a bit of an irrational fear I think it's because I have imposter syndrome. I feel like if I can figure this stuff out, it can't be that difficult Mm -hmm. or something along those lines. So I always feel like the other shoe's about to drop. And I think of, oh, they're going to knock me off my pedestal. And there was uh, somewhere in Manhattan, it's really weird you said this. Oh, it was at Carnegie Hall, right? And... I was, by the way, totally, like, place-dropping, but uh, I was at uh, Carnegie Hall uh, seeing a concert, and I was thinking, I'm probably one of the more influential people in poker, as far as tournament poker. I have to be, like, in the bottom tier as far as income in this audience, right? I have to be the bum in this, and none of these people know who I am. Right? Like, no one knows who I am. Mm-hmm. And in poker, nobody knows who I am. Uh, if you sell 
people say you need a thousand true fans, right? I don't even have that, probably. And I'm doing fine. Things are fine. You, you say Negreanu has 400,000 Twitter followers. I'm really happy for him. I'd just like a thousand. Mm-hmm. I'd like a thousand guys I could really help and improve their games, and we could mutually we could have a mutually beneficial relationship. And that's not even... You want to talk about irrelevant in the rest of the world. That's irrelevant in poker. There's supposedly a hundred million poker players on Earth. I want a thousand. That people always do the oh, you're giving away too much, and I, I always want to go. What am I gonna do, buddy? You're gonna go to every card room from here to Kazakhstan and hand out the method poker talent, and then get them to understand it, and then get them to apply it. And then, by the way, it's not like I can't make mistakes. I'm sure I make mistakes as well, but I've always thought poker players take themselves. It's it's a joke. There was a guy in my gym, a trainer, who said, you're a professional poker player, and I, I, I did the specification. Well, to me, a professional poker player is a guy who makes his money from... Uh, makes his money from playing poker. I, I would call myself a head coach now, uh, but I do still play the game. And he goes, well, I don't believe you're a poker player because you're not a douchebag like everybody else, <laughs> like everybody else in this city who calls themselves a poker player. And I go, and I, the line I always have when a poker player is like getting, and I have this with some of my players, which is, I think you guys have heard a few times on this podcast how I speak to some of my players, but. I don't think you get the extent I have to drill some of these guys because a lot of these guys are about to end their careers because of their ego. And they're either going to get an undressing from me or they're going to get it from life, and I'd much rather they get it from me. Yeah. And one of the things I always say is, you know, you don't build homes for the homeless. In fact, you don't even do a physical feat. Literally, I could train pretty much anyone to do what you're doing and probably do it better. So unless you're going to diversify, unless you're going to be an ambassador of this game, unless you're going to work really hard, unless you're going to work more than the next guy, you don't really deserve anything. And when I see a lot of these poker award shows, uh, for better or worse, my first thought is participation trophies. It's just, I don't care. I I don't... it, It was neat that they put us up there. I think it... I want to see Jonathan Little succeed because I'm a big fan of Jonathan Little. But we got to realize we are not that important. To There's nothing more obnoxious in New York City than the finance guys walking around like they own the place. And everybody else on the street is going, you guys literally create nothing. You take the money from people who create things. You put it into fancy financial instruments take a percentage, and nobody profits. Literally, 92% of hedge funds do not outperform an index fund. If I just spread my money across indices, I would make more money than you. So don't sit there and tell me you're more important than that. And most poker players, uh, even so-called professionals, are not making money from the game. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that full force. Uh, Many of them have have money from their families. They have trust funds. They have money from when the game started that's gradually waning. They have money from one tournament score, or they have money from another business, and they like to play pretend that they're professional poker players. And that just so disgusts me, because 
when I did play professionally, I played professionally. I played with a gun to my head. I was supporting my mother. I was supporting other people. I was working 16-hour days. I would work a tournament shift eight to ten hours, take one hour off, and then play cash games for six hours. So I don't want to hear these people that play 17 hours at the end of the week when they're done with their computer programming job tell me they're semi-pro. That, that's offensive. It's like, I don't walk into a doctor's office and go, hey, I played Operation once or twice. I think I know what you're doing. <laughs> That's it. It's, it, it. Once again, I'm in, indignant and arrogant. Forgive me all. I, I don't know. Does this sound arrogant? I get told I'm, eh. I get told I'm arrogant. But I think, it's a, I think it's a statement of fact, quite honestly. It's a, in, by the way, I try to live what I preach. I don't call myself a professional poker player anymore because that's not fair to the guy who plays 340 days a year and does 10 hours a day. I don't think that's a healthy way to live, but he is working on his craft. And a lot of the guys who make the most money from poker are never going to be addressed in these poker award shows. The guys who make the most money at poker are the most boring people you've ever met in your life. And I don't mean that they're not interesting people to talk to, but they're not the type to be flashy. They're, they're just, they're very soft. A lot of these men are very soft-spoken, very intelligent. They find their edge. They press it pretty mercilessly. Very quiet life. Very few friends. Not going to discuss their earnings. And that, to me, is a pro. That, to me, is a pro. And that's precisely who is not going to be rewarded with these poker award shows. So is it interesting? Yeah. Is it fun? Yeah, I think it's fun. But yeah, I, I do think it's a little ridiculous, I guess would be the word. Yeah, and if we had been shortlisted for the four, this would have been a total different episode. I would have just been thanking the Academy and uh, Jesus and my <laughs> mom, and it would have been, what, what an art, you know, man joking. No, it, it's just one of these things that made me think again about the poker world, and I do, I love the game. I love a lot of the characters and personalities. I've met a lot of good poker players who I enjoy uh, the company of and chatting with, etc. But, yeah, I think we just there's like a general theme throughout poker. And I think you hit the nail on the head when it's self-importance. They're full of their self-importance. And it's a bubble. And I think it's just personality types of people who lack social skills. But they've got money, so it gives them mm-hmm. like a little bit of a shot in the arm, and they just come across obnoxious. I don't think they're bad people. I think they're bad uh, communicators and awkward, and a lot of it just becomes that bravado. Like you saw, it. it's like these young guys in awkwardness. I mean, I remember watching the two months, two million stuff, and it was like all these people in. You know, great players, great cash game players, whatever, but they were geeks. Like, in my world, from Scotland, like, these people are, you know, and good luck to them. They've made more money from poker than I would ever make or anything, but these they were just out of place. You know, like, that sort of crowd when they go and do stuff, like, let's go and do this, and that is just, it comes across to me as, like, I don't know. Um, and I actually just wonder in terms of, like, their own well-being and happy you know because it's like popping bottles and doing this (laughs) and that it's like i kind of know that you know because and i'm just like nah it just kind of makes this sort of thing and then you've got people as you say in poker it's kind of with all the full tilt scandal when that happened and stuff i was laughing because i was like what do you mean like this isn't and and there's this guy chip dumping and 
some tournament and somebody's angle shots. I mean, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is a, a solitary game, really. You know, like, you play with I, other players, but you're going into casinos where you're playing against, as long as you're over 21 in Vegas and 18 in the UK, you can go in and play. You're going to be playing against criminals, c- crazy psychopaths, people that are geeks, computer scientists, whatever. And it's like, oh, this guy did that, this guy did that. You're like, well, wait a minute, you're playing a game. You're playing against all walks of life. That doesn't mean all walks of life who enjoy poker 24-7 and study poker. That means some guy that's a gangster that likes going in and gambling in a casino. You know, and if he tells you, like, yeah. F you, I'm not paying you, then you got to deal with that. Like, it's like, you know, the guy does that in other lines of business. He's not going to change because you beat him at poker or whatever. And then you've got other people who are just going to try, they're not ethical. They'll, they'll try this, they'll try that angle. And then you've got other people who you will get on with and meet. And I just think it's like, when I see people like, you know, uh, you know, God love them, but Alan Kessler and people like that, they're moaning about this tournament ruling and that tournament ruling and this blind structure and this and that. It really just makes you like, wow. You know, like, just if, when they are right, and don't get me wrong, like, these, they're hard workers, like you say. That guy is on flights, off flights to go and play $400 buy-ins and uh, $800 this event and small events. And, you know, they are real professionals. Like you say, it's like Alan Kessler gets knocked. But I, he is the, what the guy that you were, when you were talking about, I was thinking there, you know, all right, he moans like hell on Twitter or whatever about this and that. But he will not, you know, you'll, you'll find an edge. You'll do this. You'll push it. You'll sit there. He makes money. He's done it for years and years and years. He's living a good lifestyle. He seems happy. And it's like, I think poker, what happens is, because a lot of it is young males, they get, if they don't have a Lambo, it's like traders and stuff, you know? Uh, if they don't have a Lamborghini, ah, you've not made it. You're a failure, you know? And, that. and, and Alex knows more than me, like, what the reality of a professional poker player is. It's about being your own boss, setting your own hours, and... If you can make your living, like Alex has talked about in his newsletter, thirty to fifty k a year, like you're doing well, you're you've you've done great, you know. Yeah, something. A, a man I was talking to who I really respect said, "This is a little crude, guys, so forgive me, but." Uh, he said a high-class hooker makes more money than I'll ever make. Are they really richer than I am? And that's a very crude statement, but sometimes I, I see you have to use crude statements when I teach. When I teach, I cuss. When I teach, I cuss, because if I cuss during a sentence and I haven't cussed for 20 minutes, you're going to remember it. Uh, th- there's a lot of analysis that shows that, right? So if you're not getting something, I'm probably going to drop an F-bomb if I think it's socially fine to get you to remember it, right? Because I don't care about being seen as a nice guy. I care about doing my job, providing the service which you just paid me $100 an hour to perform. And that phrase is very crude, but it makes a great demonstration of you... You can sell your kidneys for money. I mean, you can probably... What what value are you providing? What is the good of it? And 
a lot of times when I see poker players talking about like, oh, there, there's this angle here, there's this structure that I could take advantage of, and there's my my question is always, what's the point? Like, if I go out there and make ten million dollars as a poker player, but this is all I do for the rest of my life, what 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 was the point? What was the point of all those hours spent studying? It's not. Chip Reese, uh, people always do that. Who would you have a meal with, living or dead? Uh, my first answer is always my grandfather because I didn't have enough time with him. But if I had to go outside my family, I'd pick Chip Reese. It's one of the smartest things I ever heard, which really changed my view. I'll, I'll give the two things I heard, which I think were the smartest things I ever heard. Uh, one was Chip Reese said, Something to this effect, forgive me guys, I'm paraphrasing, but it was one of, it was in one of those old gambling books. I, I think the ones you really like, Barry. Mm -hmm. It was uh, probably published in the early 2000s. He said Stu Unger was the best player, but he was the worst professional I ever saw. And the reason for that is being a professional is about how much money you take off of the table. And he didn't add this, but later on I added, you know, how, how much fun and how much good you do with the money you take off the table. I've made much less than most of my colleagues because, quite frankly, they're better poker players than me. All the people in two months, two million, are a hundred times the poker player I am. But I've, I've probably had more fun. I've seen more countries. I've read more books. I've had more adventures. And to me, that makes me the richer man. And that's how I've always defined it. And I will always stay that way. And I think it's made me a more well-rounded person and I think it's made me better in business because I understand people much more intimately than these people do. I every every poker player, what do they put on their Twitter profile, Barry? Entrepreneur? Every single one of them. <laughs> they put entrepreneur. Entrepreneur means you provide a service or a good for people for compensation. That means you must understand people. You must work to make people happy. You do not make money in business unless you provide a good or a service that people keep buying. You can only trick someone once. But everybody has to get gasoline every week because it works, right? If you provide something that works, it's going to keep getting used. And... They're telling people they want to be the starting quarterback, and in peewee pee football, they're not showing up. I can't spell the word entrepreneur. I tried to the other day. I didn't know how to do it. Because to me, and I'll tell you the second thing, the smartest thing I'd ever heard, and it was an anecdote. And maybe I've told this on the podcast before. Do you know who the first millionaire was in the California gold rush, Barry? The guy that, like, sold the spades or whatever in buckets. Yes, yes, it was a Chinese man on the side of the road selling shovels. I'll bet you anything he never told anybody how much he made until the very end. Laughed there. He probably left immigrant, probably spat on back then, called expletives. Probably just laughed his ass off. <laughs> just selling it on the side, right? And I'm sure he helped some people get very rich, but that's not his business. But he was looking at the flow of people going up, and he said, these plots of land, I understand supply and demand, these plots of land are going to become more expensive 
and it's going to, the gold in these hills, in them there hills, are, is going to be taken out. But what if I could sell each one of them a shovel? What could I do? And I took a decision when I was 25 years old. I said, I think poker is going to be a lot like that gold rush. I think average salary right now is 80000 I think that's going to be forty in six years. And I was wrong. It was three. And I, I took that opportunity. And a lot of guys complaining. I'll tell you why poker players act so arrogant. You behave arrogantly when you need to compensate for something. And many of these guys do not make the money they purport to make. Not even close. Mm-hmm. And the IRS is brutal in this country. You can get away with it for 10 years, but once they catch up to you, you can kiss your ass goodbye. And a lot of them know they're never going to own a home. They're never, uh, it's going to be really hard to settle down with a girl when you're saying, I've got, I've got X amount of IRS debt. The IRS can set whatever number they want for you because you're clearly a liar. You've never told them anything. So who's going to believe you in court if you do want to fight it? And it's very short-sighted. And again, it's what's the point? What, what, why do you do this? The reason you should play poker is it's a fun game. And this is, make no bones about it, it is gambling. You hit the nail right in the head. When you and I were growing up, Barry, when you played cards, you were playing cards. You were in someone's basement. There was beer around, people were smoking pot. It was, or whatever was going on, right? People, they were gamblers. Now, I'm really, I'm really happy they brought it to the Internet websites, and I'm really glad they brought it to casinos, and they civilized it a little bit, right? But just because you put a combat sport in an octagon in Las Vegas doesn't mean people aren't beating the snot out of each other in the middle. You are trying to take another person's money. That is going to attract grifters. And by the way, if you are a person who excels at taking other people's money, through deception, do not expect respect from the populace. By the way, you will never do that to a dollar total anyone cares about. Anyone cares about. <laughs> Dude, what, what percentage of the poker population do you think makes a million dollars a year? Oh, one percent. Oh, one, one, it's probably not even one. I don't know if it's point one, Barry. I don't know if it's point oh one. By the way, in most major metropolises, what will $1 million buy you in London? Not much. Anything? New York? Nothing. You're a gambler. Accept it. Again, you're not going to be on Forbes. So you buying the watches. You know why a CEO can get that watch? Sorry, I'm on my pulpit and I'm, I'm not stopping now. You know why a CEO can get that watch? The $20,000 watch, because that guy works 70 hours a week. That guy, 3,000 people depend on him for his job. That guy, when he comes home, he'd like to sit on the couch and just watch his kids play and watch Sports Center. But you know what? He can't do that because he or she, actually, more coming on now, because they have two, three hours with their family, and then they've got to go back to work. And they've done that every night for 10 years. So for those two, three hours, they should be taken off. They're doing family game night because it's really important they talk with their kids because they get two or three hours. 
They get to have that watch because it's their own damn money and they earned it. And 3,000 people owe their job to that person. You do not deserve that watch. You do nothing for anybody. Okay? And that's really what I tell a lot of poker players. If you want to play this game, and it's really fun, it's a, I love this game more than anything, but it's a game. It is just a game. Now, if you take the money off the table and become Sir Lancelot and use it for charitable contributions, then by all means, you're a warrior. You don't even have to share that with anyone. Now you're doing something for somebody. Or if you're using it for your family, that's great. That's fine, but you taking money off of the table, like, who cares? Like, why should anyone care? Who are you? Like, that's, and I really, I wrote a mission statement for myself, Barry, years ago when I was trying to define my business, because every damn business book says that. Have you ever noticed that? Define your mission statement. I was like, okay, I'm trying to be good at this. Let me define my mission statement for my small consultation, right, <laughs> clinic. And then I wrote down reclaim poker for the players. That was my thing. And, that, and you'll notice that's always been my branding. It has always been my branding. It's always I'm trying to make this game fun again because it was taken away from me by those douchebags. And, that, and by the way, I want people to do different things if it's fun to them because that's where real creativity, if you love this game and you want to see this game advance, you're going to have to instill a spirit of creativity and innovation and drive, and communication, and hard work into people. What you can't do is this click thinking, right? All of the best poker players came from teams where there's very innovative thought expressed. And the reason why they condemn you for any different thought is they know that'll keep you in your place. These people aren't stupid. They know what they're doing. And they want to keep you in your place. That's really what they want to do. I know nobody listening to this knows these people as well as I do. You would not like a lot of these people that you watch on TV if you knew them in person. And then there's some people you wouldn't know much about who seem very abrasive, who are the best people you'd ever meet in your life. Have you ever noticed that, Barry? That's how it is in the card room? Yeah. See, they're the best person you've ever met in your life. Or it's a guy he's out for his own, you know, which is fine. I respect that's how people live, but... Yeah, it, poker is a game. It is supposed to be a game, but it, it's kind of like having an award show for who's the best in Jenga. You know, like it's okay. This is neat, but let's let's pretend this. Is, let's not pretend this isn't Comic Con, right? Let's not pretend we're not dressing up in our Game of Thrones costumes <laughs> to go here. You know what I? It, it's fun. It's fun. By the way, we're all adults. We can all do what we want. It's fun, but please, guys, can we not take ourselves so seriously? It's just a you know, now that I'm done with a fire and brimstone sermon for 27 minutes, I'd like y'all to lighten up, okay? Like, is what I'm trying to say. But, yeah, anyway. All right, Barry, let's, let's, oh, you got something to say before we save some babies? They should have fucking shortlisted us. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's get into the questions. Um, this one is from Mike. Love the show, and I've been a listener of the show for over a year. My question pertains to what is your opinion on min-betting. You talk about throwing some curveballs at your opponent. This, I think, would be like throwing a knuckleball. 
In limited practice, I have used the min bet on the turn-in river with bluffs and value bets. Surprisingly, I have gotten quite a few folds from it, which is great since it doesn't need to work that often. I'll continue to implement the min bet and see what happens. Thanks, Mike. I will... Mike, I'm going to admit to you there is one player who I don't know if he wants to be named, but he's probably one of the best tournament players in the world. He uses the min bet really well. I will be honest, I've done research. It's not like I can call this guy up and say, hey, why do you do that? I don't think he's going to share that with me. So I've done research to kind of poach the move, and which usually I'm pretty good at because I can break down the math and look at the other guy's range and go, oh, this makes a lot of sense. But uh, I'm not going to lie to you, I can't really do it with this one. It's really tough. Um the one thing I know, when I did try to work with min bets, uh, when I did try to work with min bets, I would do them a lot on the river as a blocking cell bet. And I was surprised by how often people would just call. The other time I would do it is, let's say it got checked to me on the river and there was just absolutely... I just knew my opponent had probably next to nothing. I had quads or something. It, the board was jack, jack, two, three, four, right? And I knew my opponent had very likely a high card, right? Or, or for what I can't really come up with a perfect example because a lot of times in that situation, the opponent would have five, sixes, sevens, or eights, and I would bet half pot because that always gets called. But many times, if I just thought, this guy is folding everything on the river, or their river fold was 74% or something, I would just min bet to see if they'd come over the top. And it worked once in a while, but it didn't happen that often. And just like you, I saw a surprising number of folds. Uh, one thing I did in cash games a lot of the time was I would just min bet when I was planning to check versus guys I knew used HUDs. I would see their training videos and see they were like very HUD dependent, and I know that would throw off the statistics wildly. So, I it would make my it would make my frequencies a little higher than they actually were. But it's a lot of times I think it can uh, buy you a showdown online because it looks like a misclick. Uh, so, let's say the board is say you have a uh, I'll do one of my favorite boards for teaching. Uh, queen 9-3. And you see that in a guy calls. So, and you have uh, pocket twos. Now, you, the see that I would argue is good here a lot of the time because you're going to get called by a lot of king jack and jack 10 and high cards, right? And then the turn is another three. The guy checks to you. Well, any normal bet here is probably going to fold all of his draws, fold all his ace highs, but it's going to get fours, fives, sixes, sevens, eights, and a nine to call you. So what I used to do online is I would just snap that min, and then it would look like a, I was always playing really fast for a while. That was I liked playing really quickly because uh, I think this was an Annie McLeod thing. I think he talked about it a bit. But if you play really quickly, you get to see your opponent's honest time bank. If you play, if you time bank 10 seconds, then he gets to think. And then you have no idea how long he needed for the decision, right? So 
if a guy's just instantly, a lot of times people will mirror your timing, and my game plan automatically is going to be far superior than most people's game. So if you start mirroring, if you mirror my timing, you're going to fail at some point. Most, most guys listening to this, it, that's what's going to happen. And if you don't mirror my timing, a lot of times you'll give away when you have a real decision versus when you don't, because people don't realize it, but they use the same timing uh, with real decisions. They always let it go to the same amount on... My favorite is they let it go to the time bank, but they don't really want to use the time bank, so they use it for two seconds, and then they come up with a decision like, wow, haven't seen that one before. Look, I need time, but I don't need time. But uh, our, the other one is guys use about exactly five seconds. Now, if I see you do one of those things, and I know that, and then I see you really need 30 seconds on the turn, it's like, well, you just capped your range. And I can use that accordingly. Uh, by the way, that doesn't mean I can bluff you that often, because many guys, after they make the turn call, are just never folding the river. But it, it does help me if perhaps I have a decent hand. I, I know I can get more money or whatever. But... When people are mirroring my timing and I'm going hyper fast, what I can do is I can sell a misclick, really, especially if I've been at the table really for a long time. So say I am in that situation with the twos on the queen nine three three board, and I do want, I just want to buy the showdown. I want the guy to continue to call with his ten eight, continue to call with just his high cards, but more importantly, I don't want to check there and have him lead with that entire range a random percentage of the time, which is always really hard for me to find in a HUD and really hard to guess on the field because the field is all over the place with this, whereas the field more or less is in the same. All the data is if with, is within one swell in the bell curve in the middle with many different distributions. It is not like that for leading the river. It is all over the damn place, and I can never figure it out, right? Furthermore, I have tested really like poker players that have five, $10 million in earnings and put them in that spot where they check the turn. I'm not convinced they know what they're doing either. I think they call there randomly and I think they're right sometimes and they're not other times. I, I, because I was trying to poach their techniques. I was trying to figure it out. And I couldn't. And I either I'm too stupid or there's just not much there. I'm not sure which one it was. Honestly, it's probably equally likely on both river aggression frequency doesn't help you as much as you'd like, unless it's really pronounced in one or the other direction. But anyhow, um, what I do is I just min bet there, and the guy would go, ha ha, dork. He misclicked, I call, and then they'd check the river just out of habit, and then I, I would just get a one-street game out of it most of the time. In a, nine times out of ten when they check raise, they have something. Uh, now, should you do this play now? No, the typical player is pretty bright these days. The typical player is getting better, so they might see through that. As far as uh, the other thing, the other time I use a min bet is there's a lot of times uh, I just completely whiffed on the river, and they check to me, and I have no hope of taking down the pot with a full size bet, half size bet, third size bet, two x pot size bet. But if I bet. 132nd the pot, which needs to work, uh, scientifically speaking, never. Uh, there is a random group of people that will not call with a, their busted ace-high flush draws there and will not call that. Or the guy just might time out 
And what it ends up doing is it puts my river aggression frequency into an insane amount. And what ends up happening, I probably shouldn't have given this part away, but uh, it puts my river aggression frequency into like 50%. Everybody goes, oh, this guy's a triple barreling idiot. And then really I'm value betting way more on the river than that number would show. So I end up getting, which is why I end up getting calls I don't deserve, which is why you need no caddy to take a look at all the river bets. If you see some guy min bet eight out of 14 times on the river, then his river aggression frequency isn't truly 68%. It's 32 with eight separate one big blind checks. Uh, Matthew John actually wrote a terrific you really do write these videos once you get into concept videos. He, uh, he wrote a terrific video on just small betting. And one of the things he said that's really interesting is if you start considering all checks as betting zero, it'll really open your mind to smaller bets. And that, that's helped me a little bit, but I'm not going to lie to you, uh, Mike. I hope your name was Mike. I was going to call you my friend, but then I thought I got your name. Was it Mike? Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it was Mike. Okay, it was Mike. Okay, thank, thank, thank you, Mike. But uh, thank you, Mike, for your question. That's actually something I'm looking into, and I'm not super confident in what I'm doing. There, everything I just relayed to you used to really work when I played every day, but in the current field, I usually know what works and what doesn't. I know some of this stuff still works for other players, but... I haven't brought this into my instruction with my private students because I just see it misapplied so much. So keep trucking. If you get any really great findings, let us know. Okay. Uh, next question is from Pete. Hello, guys. I see a lot of talk, a lot of talk, sorry, I'm making you talk more casually than you've typed. I see a lot of talk about GTO play. Can you tell me some situations where I can use this, and how can I find out game theory optimal situations for poker? I understand some basic game theory concepts, but I'm finding it hard to grasp for poker. Thanks. Uh, thank you for your question. I I think I'd be the absolute worst on God's green earth to discuss GTO with, because what I do is exploitive to the extreme. If you really want to understand my strategy versus... If, if you want to learn about that, I think you got to go with Doug Polk. Uh, Doug Polk plays the highest stakes cash games. And in that, it's all about balancing and then shifting your balance randomly to, to get the other guy a, a little confused. And a lot of that stuff's really good if you're going to massively multi-table cash games. When I did do that, I had a very basic GTO style. I would never say I was great at it. Uh, but it did work. It, 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 it worked, uh, even in my very elementary form uh but something is something to be said is the cash games were much different back then when i started uh although i don't i don't think they've gotten that much every time i play poker live or online i go we're gonna be all right barry (laughs) (laughs) this game's all right (laughs) but uh yeah as far as gto a great book to read about that not the best way I would say to get into GTO is to read about a sport you love and how they use GTO theory in something. So probably the best slew of papers I've read recently about GTO theory 
would be in regards to penalty kicks. Uh, I'll be honest, I started looking into soccer because 90% of my students don't understand my baseball analogies, and it was starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> but then I got into Soccernomics, and this is a pretty neat book. It's, it's a little drier than you would expect for such a fun subject, but it, it, it was really good fun. And when they, got to, uh, when they got to penalty kicks, it got really interesting because... Uh, one thing that's really interesting is Messi apparently is game theory optimal and penalty kicks. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts. He has no idea that he is. He just goes off of feel. And what they describe GTO. So here's basic GTO. And what you're dealing with in poker is let's do a simplified edition of this. So simplified GTO in Penalty kicks would be, you can either kick center, left, or right. And center actually is a pretty valid option because many goalies try to cheat and jump to either side, which would just be hilarious if they jump to the right and you just drill it right in the middle. But those are the three options you have. Now, GTO would be, you get a randomizer that you hide and nobody else in the, the stadium can see, and it says left, center, or right, and then you kick that way, and you have the exact same approach up to the ball. That would be game theory optimal. Nobody could get a tell off of you, and nobody would have any idea where you're kicking. It would have nothing to do with anything that happened before. Now, the goalie is going to have to pick game theory optimal there. They're better off picking a decision and sticking with it a lot of the times than just trying to figure it out. Because what's going to happen if they try to figure it out is they figure out way too late what's happening. And then we've seen that penalty kick a thousand times, or I did on YouTube when I was looking at this, which is they they jump a second too late and the ball just sails in. And they would be much better off just cheating a second earlier and picking one side and going for it. Now, once you introduce anything else into this formula... Game theory optimal for you is going to have to adjust. So now let's say you're the goalie, and you know for a fact that the opposing player is not going to use center, like most of them never do, because if you drill it right down the center and the goalie just grabs it and you lose the World Cup, you're likely to get beaten and dragged through the streets. Um, now you have to change. So what should have been 33-33-33 now has to go to 50-50, and you have to pick one or the other, and you have to completely abandon center. Now, once you abandon center, does that make you exploitable? Absolutely. But is this the better adjusted game theory optional design? Yes. What, what the best poker players are really good at, which... I still don't, I'm still not confident I'm doing a great job is explaining is they have drilled themselves to be that penalty kicker. And no matter how many times they kick that ball in all the different locations, you still have no idea where it's going. Right now, the guys that are even beyond that will start realizing your algorithm and they will create a balanced algorithm against you. So GTO. Now let's say, Let's say I'm doing a penalty kick, and for whatever reason, I get a junior, uh, what do you call him, goalkeeper, goaltender, mm, goalie? Goalkeeper. Yeah, okay. I've, I've read a couple different ones. I don't know which one. Anyway, <clears throat> so 
let's say I get a junior guy and he jumps to one side 90% of the time. He, he jumps right. Well, I'm going to kick left. Now, that would be maximum exploitive play. That's what I teach, which is, hey, the field jumps right, and I don't think they're ever going to adjust unless they sit there with you for 10 hours because most of these guys are watching football, ironically, most of these guys are <clears throat> most of these guys are not paying attention. In the words of my uh, very intelligent friend Barry Chalmers, if you took a survey at the end of a poker hand live, six out of eight of those players would not have any idea what just happened. The betting order, or maybe even the hands. Most people are not paying attention. So, especially as you go to lower stakes, and as especially as you go to tournaments where people are playing multiple tables online. People are only playing 40 hands in a casino. Uh, people are talking to their friends at the beginning of a live tournament. Uh, I don't think anybody's paying attention, so I'm going to teach, teach you to kick right 100% of the time. Now, if you start kicking right 100% of the time, do you become exploitable? Oh, God, yes, you do. The question is, is the guy going to figure it out? Now, what the best poker players in the world do, which is, and we're talking like the John Van Fleets, the Doug Pokes, is they see you go right 56% of the time and left 43% of the time and they're going to hedge <coughs> just enough to make sure that they're taking advantage of that but they need to do it in a way that they they don't expose that they've noticed your inconsistency your imbalance because once you they expose that imbalance you're going to adjust and now they're left with a strategy that's actually going to be very suboptimal. And if you're in that gear for a long enough time, you will lose money at poker. So you have basic exploitive play, which is the Russians. Uh, I was lucky enough to teach a Russian school a while ago, and they actually have two words for plays. There's a balance and there's an exploit. A balance is you pick a certain percentage of time you should do everything, uh, Pile Solver is really good for this, getting good at that. And then you randomize it. I, I use a watch. I use random num number generators. I use the second clock on the tournament clock. And the other one is an exploit. This is mostly what I teach. And this is Master Tournament Poker in one class is the most exploitive strategy I have ever put together. My new webinar if anyone knows what you're doing, you're going to have a very bad day, right? But generally, most of my clients, I did a survey, Barry, of my clients, but the average age of my clients is, this is really interesting, it's like mid-40s, and a lot of them play live. So I'm thinking a guy in his mid-40s, if he opens up to like 4X, what, is anybody going to three-bet him at the table? Like ever? I... I probably wouldn't. I would just assume he's got ace-king or he's got jacks or something like that. And that's a strategy you can use to exploit people. Now, should you just beat them over the head with it? No, you should vary it up. But you should know the basics of an exploitive strategy. Decide when you're going to use that and have the basics of a game theory optimal strategy and decide when you're going to apply that. Now, do I think... Game Theory Optimal is super important in tournaments where most players, it's something like 95% of players you're going to play less than 40 hands with. Absolutely not. 
Cash games? Should you be playing exploitively? Oh, no. Especially online. You know, live, you sit down at a cash game table, it's a little live, try to take advantage of them, right? But if you come back the next day, you've got to start varying it up. But I would say if you're playing tournaments, if you're, if you're playing tournaments under 109s and Sunday majors, where the field is so big and it doesn't, you're very unlikely to run into a reg that can take advantage of it. I would just say, find out what the field does and exploit them. And treat the field as a mass. The field has characteristics that are very consistent. The, f- the field is, I'll, I'll give you one of them, that's from uh, Master Tournament Poker in one class. The field folds about 50% of the time on the flop. It's 48 or whatever, depending on what distribution you look at. You have a pair or better 50% of the time. The other 50% of the time you miss. This is blindingly obvious what the field likes to do, which is with a high card, they usually don't peel. And if they have a pair or anything better, they do peel. Now, obviously, there's extenuating circumstances. If the board comes jack of diamonds, nine of diamonds, eight of diamonds, they're probably not calling with two black twos. And if the board comes 2-2-3 two, two, rainbow and they have ace-king with a backdoor flusher, they're probably not folding the ace high. But this is a very good place to start. And I don't see a lot of tournament trainers starting with this where, hey, 95% of the guys you're going to play against literally will call if they have a pair and fold with a high card. Unless it's the nut high card or the worst pair in the world. This gives you a framework to starting with. And by the way, the field, most of the fields I look at fold between... 30 to 20% of the time on the turn. That is really low. That means when their pair has not been significantly threatened, their pair are better, they are holding on again. And then on the river, it's like 19 on a lot of databases. That means the field likes to call, which is fine. These are all adults. This is what they want to do. They want to call and see if their hand's good. They're playing, they're playing poker for fun, right? But if you're trying to balance against that guy, like... That, that min bet with the twos on the queen nine three three board, is that balanced? Yeah, you should do it once in a while with ace three. I do do it. Do I get the exact ratios right? No, probably not. But does it matter? No, because what everybody does is just call on the turn. Or they did back in the day. But there's a lot of plays like that. Let's say you have, uh, let's say you have jack nine of uh, spades there. I, I see a lot of guys on that queen nine three three board. They check back and let the guy bluff on the river. The thing you got to realize is bluffing is something the poker population does not like to do. Because if you bluff and you're wrong, you have to show everybody, and that is very embarrassing to a lot of people. When you go when you go to a poker room, Barry, do you feel like everybody wants to be seen as a poker player? Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, they got the headphones in, their eyes are darting around, you always got to go, like, what, what are you looking at? Like, are you, you Ivy? Like, I, I don't even know if Ivy's looking at anything. I think Ivy's thinking. I don't know what you're doing. It's, uh, it, it, I think people want to look like a poker player, and a really bad way to look like a poker player is to bluff the river and get caught. And then get a little jibe from somebody, or just kind of feel shamed. <laughs> look at you trying. Whereas if you just check call, like nobody has to see what you have. And if you're right, cool. Check it. Cool. Check it out. I won. A hero called him. So if the field is really bad at, really bad at folding, really bad at bluffing, 
The worst strategy in the world is checking back that turn when you have Jack-9 on the Queen-9-3-3 three, three board. Bet again. Get money from Jack-10, get money from 10-9, get money from 9-8, get money from 9-7, because chances are the average person doesn't bet that much ever. The average turn continuation bet is 40. The average river continuation bet, I want to say, was, damn it, 28. Sorry, I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. If you do the most obvious pot control line in the world, which is bet, check, okay, I'll call your river bet, I don't think you're going to get a lot of leads from 9-7, 9-8. Probably not going to get an air ball bet with jack-10 if the guy misses. So you just allowed your opponent to play perfectly. Now, is it really balanced to always bet on that turn? No, because if you're betting really thinly on the turn, a really good cash game player could see that and make your life a living hell. The good news is, guys, you might go your entire life without playing against that guy. If you're playing 2750 tournaments on stars or you're playing 1-2 live cash, it's just not going to happen. So I think, it's, I think it's poor preparation to go into war expecting we're going to fight with the military might of the United States and really... We're dealing with pirates from Somalia. I, th- I, th- I think that's probably not the best idea we've ever had. And I think Game Theory Optimal has a real place. It's very fascinating academically. I really like reading about it, especially Game Theory Optimal life situations like Tommy Angelo's into. That stuff is really fun. But how often do I use it in day-to-day teaching? Well, I need to get results. I get fired if I don't get results from my students. So... I'm not going to teach GTO if I don't think it's going to get a ton of results. And I'll be honest with you, I don't, it doesn't come up a ton. But if you want to like make it in cash, multi-tabling in cash, and if you want to move up to like high-stakes tournaments, if you want to hang with Fedor Holes, if you want to hang in the high-stakes tournaments, you're going to need to learn this, and you're going to need to be better at this in combination with ICM than anyone. And quite frankly, I think that is a task that is monumental. When I've just looked over it, you guys have no idea how good those German kids are. You guys have no idea. And a lot of these guys are just so very intelligent, and they're so... And that, I guess that's the other thing that goes back to the beginning, Barry. Usually the louder the pro, the more I look at these sheets of what should be the adjustments in these high-stakes tournaments and the balancing, and they're just doing none of it, right? Whereas the quieter the guy, the better he is. Like, the way better he is. And it's so... It's always kind of funny to me who gets awarded in our industry. It's like, who, who's really loud? Who's really loud? I even admit I benefit from it. I just got a big mouth, right? Like, I'm not anyone in poker. But, yeah, it, we get rewarded for how much we talk and what we talk about. Well, I certainly do. Um, and on that, <laughs> on that uh, we're going to end it there. And... Um, Thanks very much for good good in-depth answers, Alex. I, I enjoyed that as well. Thank you. Um, okay, how can people get in touch with you for your newsletter, your upcoming webinars, etc.? That thank you made me feel like Jim Carrey was answering your poker questions. But, yeah, anyway, it's I really like my job, so it was really fun, Barry. As always, thank you for having me on. It's really fun to do this podcast. If you guys... if if you guys want to get in touch with me uh, about anything, alex at pokerheadrush.com is the email address. 
Barry is going to post a video in this one outer episode and it's my new free training video on YouTube but I think there's I'm going to do the Trump thing. There's some people who say when he really just wants to say it about himself. <laughs> but a few people did honestly say this is one of your better free ones. This is you give away a lot in this one. It's not it's not a short watch. It's not short viewing. It's 57 minutes, but I had a lot of fun making it. It's a lot more about what I'm really into right now, which is the money ball poker, uh, kind of stealing the ideas from baseball, uh, how this one awful team in the United States got to the point where they were making serious runs for the championship and just kind of grinding the stats out. I tried my best to translate that to poker, and it's actually having some real results with my players, and I kind of introduced the initial ideas with it. It's called Poker's Most Important Thing. I, I give my answer for what I believe, based on the stats, is Poker's Most Important Thing. And I think you guys will find it interesting. It was really interesting. Uh, I did a multiple choice in it, Barry, where I put four things that could be Poker's Most Important Thing, and it was right down the middle, like 25, 25, 25, people guessing. People were really not on to this one. So it's really fun. I think you guys would enjoy that video, and it's free. Uh, I really thank you guys for checking it out. And uh, be sure to check out my blog, PokerHeadRush.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. My newsletter, I have a crazy idea that I'm going to, this year, I'm going to start sending out something free every single day. I want to see how that goes. I don't think anybody's ever done that in poker, and I think that would be really fun. Because it's hard to find good poker content, don't you think, Barry? Mm -hmm. Or strategic content. And I'm going to try to do what I can. Uh, so sign up for that newsletter. And uh, that blog is for all my fun stuff, if you want to read the trip reports or my goofy little book reviews and things like that. YouTube, it's Assassin O Coaching. My, I have a new training video series coming out soon on Tournament Poker Edge. Uh, write me at alexandpokeredrush.com if you want to sign up for the site. Uh, I'll get you a link, see what I can do about a discount. And... Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. I, I I should have another two and a half minutes of plugs, but I guess not. Follow me on Twitter, at The Assassinato. Okay. Okay. Uh, keep your questions coming in for Alex. Questions at oneouter.com, and we will get them read out on a future show. Alex, thanks again for joining us today. Really enjoyed it, and look forward to speaking with you next Thursday. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.